Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Alright, we're gonna get started. Is this thing on? Check one, two, one, two. Check one, two. Oh, that's really loud. How's everyone tonight? All right. Nice to see everyone. Welcome. This is uh, Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. Uh, The series itself has been going since the late 90s, and uh, I've been doing it for almost a decade. Ellen's been doing it for a little more than a decade. Um, It's always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you tip your bartenders because they're working hard and buy a drink, obviously. Or you could tip them without buying a drink. You're welcome to do that, too. Um, Yeah, hard or soft. So just support the bar. You support the bar. You support the series. Um, We have two great readers tonight. I'm always excited about introducing the readers. Um, You know, Ellen and I curate the series, and we we like to pick people who we we love, obviously. So tonight we have uh, Jennifer Marie Brissett and James Patrick Kelly, and I'm just really uh, enthusiastic about about hearing both of them read. Uh, Before we get to them, I just want to announce about the upcoming readers for the... um, Next month, we, November 15th, we have Grady Hendricks and David Rice. So I hope you'll join us for that. December 20th, N.K. Jemison and Chris N. Brown. Yeah. January 17th, Joseph Hemmelreich. Uh, February 21st, Cassandra Kaw and Peter Nell Van Arsdale. March 21st, Chandler Clang Smith and Kelly Robson. Uh, April 18th, John Paget. May 16th, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Walk. How do you pronounce that? You're welcome. Thank you. Um, June 20th, Lawrence Connolly. August 15th, Michael Weehunt. September 19th, Kids Johnson. October 17th, Lawrence Schoen. So we got a a pretty good lineup for you guys. I hope you'll join us for that and uh, hope to see you this year and next. Um, So our first reader is uh, Jennifer Marie Brissett. Um, her, her first novel, novel uh, Elysium, it was a uh, James Tiptree Award honor book. Um, she is the author of Elysium. She has been shortlisted for the Locus Award, the Dame, James Tiptree Jr. Award, and the Story South Million Writers Award. By the way, she has this book for sale, so uh, at the break, we're gonna, between readers, we take a 10 or 15 minute break. You can come up here, buy a book, and have her sign it for you. Uh, She has also won the Philip K. Dick Special Citation. Her short stories can be found in Fantastic Stories of the Imagination, Lightspeed, Uncanny, The Future Fire, APB, Artists Against Police Brutality, and other publications. And once in her life, a long time ago, for three and a half years, she owned and operated a Brooklyn indie bookstore called Indigo Cafe and Books. 
she's currently on the faculty at the Gotham Writers Workshop, and some of her students are here tonight, uh, where she teaches science fiction and fantasy writing. Here's Jennifer Marie Brissett. Yeah. Hello. I have a soft voice, so I'm going to make sure that you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Let's see if I can adjust all this. Wow, this is exciting. <laughs> and it's especially exciting to be here with Jim, who was my mentor in grad school. And actually, my uh, first book is my um, master's thesis. So a lot is over to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I'm going to read from my next book, which I just handed in to my agent uh, a few weeks ago. Um, let's see. And this section, I just want to make sure that I say this. Um, just give you a little warning, a little trigger warning for sexual violence, so just so that you're aware. Uh, the name of the book is Elusis, and the subtitle is A Mystery. And it's, um, at the heart of it is the story of um, Persephone and Demeter. But you'll get it. Hopefully you'll get it. <laughs> okay, let me move this thing. So it's not directly in my hands. Okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Dawn, 10 years ago. The world ebbed and flowed in shadows and light, in and out of sync. Cora adjusted adjusting sight, saw things as distorted and unfocused, twisted and bent at the edges. Objects became transparent and turned in and about themselves and waved when they should have, have remained still. These unsettling visions usually lasted for only a few minutes after waking. So she lay quietly staring at the floor and waiting for her sight to clear. When her surroundings finally settled into normalcy, she stood to her feet and carefully stepped between her sleeping companions, making her way across the room. Someone, probably a member of the hospital staff, always left cups and pitchers of water on the table by the floor. Cora poured herself a small glass and drank it greedily. This water will be all that she had before reaching home, where a bowl of crema porridge will be waiting for her. Her belly grumbled just thinking about it. Her mother made the best crema porridge. The grain in her hands took on an almost magical quality. They walked back to the village with the heat pounding on their backs and the breeze blowing against their shoulders. Almost halfway home, the long parade of children had split into two. The boys headed home for their breakfast while the girls continued on towards the chore they all had to perform. Wrapped in pastel-colored cloth around their waists and heads, the young women made their way towards the stepsister to collect water to carry back to the village, passing the large open pipeworks that didn't connect. Some villages had completed the plumbing that made the water flow into the homes of the people. Meanwhile, the plumbing work for this village remained unfinished year after year, leaving the collecting of water to these girls because it was considered woman's work. The boys had reached school long before them and were less tired during classes, a fact that never really quite, sit, quite seemed fair to Cora. Lined along the edge of the entryway to the cistern sat empty wide-bellied jugs painted a variety of colors and patterns, some rubbed clean down to the clay from much use. The art in forming these jugs out of the red clay, firing them in the kiln, then painting them was a practice exclusive to women also. 
Each village had its own set of geometric patterns and the more ambitious artisans created images of life or stories like comic strips to be followed in installments. The cistern was a world unto its own, a place of work and of solace only for girls. Each picked up a jug and clutched it in their arms like a baby, then descended the steps with care as they could, could be wet and slippery. Below, the water repeated in its slish slosh echo along, the, along with the giggles and bursts of laughter. Girls splashed in the cool water, even though they were supposed to, and swam and waded and laughed and enjoyed the oasis of pleasure they made for themselves. Nadia eagerly stripped down to her underthings and dived in, undulating in the clear, sweet water like a mermaid. In the, on the edge, with her feet dangling in, Cora was facing towards the warmth of the sky, drinking in the pleasure of the moment. Nadia splashed Cora, and Cora kicked her back. The, their laughter joined with the high-pitched voices reverberating off the carved stone walls. The time went by so quickly. One by one, Cora could see some of the girls begin their ascent up the stairs, toting jugs full of water, balanced perfectly on their heads. They had all learned to do this from a young age by rolling a cloth on their crowns and then standing straight and tall and walking with perfect posture. The people depended on this water to cook, to make tea, wash their clothes and dishes, and in the evenings bathe. Indeed, the weight of the village rested on the shoulders of these young women. Come on, Nadia, stop wasting time. Okay, okay, Nadia said, then swam back to the edge and climbed onto the platform. Cora dipped a cup into the cistern and took a drink to cool her throat and to ease the empty belly, her empty belly while Nadia put on her clothes. Then they both filled their jugs. Three boys waited at the rim of the cistern while Cora and Nadia climbed out. The slightly older boys who wore school, school uniform shorts and shirts from fifth class. Heat rose to Cora's cheek at the sight of Jasine and a crazy feeling swirled in her belly as she slipped past him. They followed the girls as they made their way to the, um, with the burdens of water. Some of the boys circled behind, then ahead, showing off their acrobatic skills, doing backflips and cartwheels. Jacine walked up close to Cora. She could feel his breath on her shoulder. May I carry your jug for you? He asked, his voice like music in, in her ear. Whoever heard of a boy toting a jug of water? Cora laughed a little as her stomach squeezed tight. I can carry it, he said, showing her the small form muscle on his skinny forearm. Cora laughed and nearly lost balance with the jug. They neared a crossroads where on one side lay a field of yellow flowers blooming in the dimness of the red sun and dawn flies sparkled and danced in the wind. Beyond stood crema fields and beyond that their small village on the other side of the path lay the beginning of the great desert of rock and sand. Cora suddenly felt funny in the head. She stopped walking and took her time to set her jug down and loosened her rolled bedding strapped across her back, then aimlessly walked into the field of yellow. The sweet fragrance of the flowers surrounded her in a dizzying swirl of scent, and she reached down to pluck one. A flush of cold flowed over her skin this was not the first time Cora experienced something like this, but it was the strongest. Her arms goose-fleshed. Everything and everyone fell away. Shadows danced, dark following dark. Then st she stared up into the light, 
that shifted and became shades of red, then blue, then indigo, and gold. Nadia touched Cora on the arm. Are you all right, she asked. Cora didn't answer. She became drenched by a rain that wasn't there. Water washed the sky and made the land smooth and wet and shiny. A monsoon ripped by, tossing everything about like so much paper. It descended, swooped down, and gathered up. And in the sky, she saw them again, the large objects that shifted in and out of view, so large that their shadows covered everything. She'd been seeing them all her life, but this time was different. This time, they were not simply shadows. They had form and seemed more solid. And then she heard the screaming. Cora, Nadia said. We have to hide, Cora said. We have to hide now. Run, Cora shouted, then tripped over her water jug. It tumbled and rolled, spilling its precious contents into the soil. Mud formed near her feet and her dress dirtied with the red clay. Jacine stood before her, a dark silhouette against the dim sunlight. He reached down to help her. Cora brushed him away, self-consciously aware that her eyes were probably now glowing. She pushed her hands into the cool, soft mud and said to everyone as she stood to her feet, you should run. You should all run. Your eyes, Nadia said in confusion. Cora, are you all right? She had seen Cora's eyes glow before, but never like this piercing shimmer. Cora was always sure to hide from her friend after a powerful, steady dream, to hide from everyone so they wouldn't see what she was. With this sense of urgency, she felt none of that seemed to matter. Cora grabbed Nadia's hand and said, we have to go. Nadia offered little resistance as Cora pulled her to walk run through the daffodils towards the crema fields. Did you see something? Nadia said. Cora replied by pulling harder on Nadia's arm. Those things you see don't always happen, you know. That was true. Maybe the vision was nothing. But the feeling, so strong, Cora couldn't ignore it. In the distance, a twisted plume of dust drifted up towards a cloud-layered sky. Cora picked up the edge of her dress with one hand and pulled it waist high, then walked faster, practically dragging Nadia behind to enter the Kremer field. None of the other children followed, and the boys laughed loudly. Silly girls, a boy hollered. It's only a dust storm. The sound of their cackles echoed over the damp, silent darkness that surrounded the girls as they continued hand in hand, further and further within the giant stalks of Kremer. The thought of Jacine laughing at her sent a twinge of horror into Cora's stomach. She wanted his respect more than anything, the very idea of him thinking of her the way the others did. She shook her head and pushed onward, moving the thought to the back of her mind. Nadia finally flicked herself away from Cora's grip and stomped her feet. What is happening? Nadia demanded. There's no time, Cora said, her heart pounding. We have to hide. And she grabbed at Nadia's hand again. Nadia pulled away. From what? Nadia said. It's only a dust storm, like they said. Do you hear them laughing at us? Cora, I think something's really wrong with you. Cora did feel foolish for giving in to the urgent sense of danger in her heart, brought on by a garbled vision of rain. She felt her throat tighten. Maybe there was something wrong with her. Nothing had ever happened in this boring, out-of-the-way place. Even the children's nightly march increasingly seemed like a waste of time. Then a series of shots echoed over the wind, followed by a cacophony of screams. Skimmer trucks slithered on giant tentacle legs at an amazing speed. A shrill cry pierced the air as the raiding party surrounded the children, 
circling and circling, spinning red dust higher and higher, choking the breath, blocking the vision. A few rode abilas, which these children had never seen outside of pictures, their white haunches with black stripes terrifying in their size and ferocity penned them in. A girl fled into the field of yellow flowers only to be picked up by a large soldier and carried off into the bushes, swinging her arms and screaming for help. Two boys, brothers, ran in the opposite direction into the open sand. A shot rang out and one of them fell face forward into the dust with a thud. The other rigidly stared down in disbelief. The one who had made the shot, no more than a boy himself, grinned wildly, showing all his teeth. His compatriots patted him on the back. The lead truck paused, and a, ma and a man whose features looked nothing but angry held a small pistol in his hand and fired a shot in the air that cracked like lightning. All movement, but the wind ceased. This way, Cora whispered. Nadia um, willingly accepted her hand, and together they ran, swishing through the leaves that, with swinging arms. The dark meant nothing to Cora. Her eyes luminesced like the sparks of fireflies, and she could see everything. Nadia breathed heavily. Cora threw off her ganar. Deeper and deeper they fled, stumbling into a thick maze of stalks as the scent of moist grasses enveloped them. Ahead, hidden in the ground, lay a stasis chamber. All the kids knew about it and played with it. They left it hidden under the dirt so that the grown-ups wouldn't find it and take it away. A transport crashed here long ago, spreading its debris for miles. Most of the transport had been gathered up and recycled, but there were bits and parts, large and small, left behind. The chamber remained lodged underground like a coffin. Cora fell to her knees, crawling on all fours, and began to dig through the soil with her bare hands. Help me, she whispered to Nadia, as shots continued to ring out overhead. Both girls scraped at the dirt until they touched something hard. The big man who had shot the pistol calmly stepped down from the truck and strode towards the surrounded children. The young soldiers moved out of his way as he walked about, and he fatherly touched the head of the boy soldier who had made the deadly shot. The child grinned hard, holding his large gun up in both hands like a trophy. The man casually waved his pistol like an index finger at the children who shivered in the middle of the path. He had glassy eyes, yellowish, and, and speckled with pigment where they should have been white, and a raised mole high on his left cheek. Slowly he scanned the scene, then he gazed into the distance as though what was before him was of no consequence and said, Neil. No one stirred. No one breathed. Neil, he repeated. The soldiers pushed those who moved too slow down to their knees, placing their hands behind their heads. He said to the terrified children, I am now your commanding officer. His voice resonated over the sounds of a girl being violated somewhere in the bushes. You will refer to me always as commander. Yes, commander, sir, the child soldier shouted. The kneeling children remained silent, though sweat and tears flowed freely on many of their faces. When I speak, you will respond as the others do, he said, and slapped one of the kneeling boys across his face. Say it, the child said with his mouth muffled by mucus. Yes, Commander, sir. The commander held a gun to the crying child's forehead. Again. Yes, Commander, sir, the child said. Louder. Yes, Commander, sir, he screamed. You are now soldiers in the army of Adonis Okoni. He is our great leader in this, our mighty struggle. The teachers of Okoni will 
help us to drive the enemy from our world. Akoni is God, and I am the right. I am His right hand. Therefore, I am the voice of God. You will follow orders at all times. We will not tolerate cowards. Do as you are told, and live to see the glorious day when our people will be free. He turned away as if considering the sky and said to one, as if to no one, "These are mostly girls here. Where are the boys?" They must be in school, Commander Sir, one of, the, one of his soldiers answered. He picked Jasin up by the shoulders and shouted, Where's your school? No, a kneeling boy screamed. The commander let Jasin go and aimed a gun at the boy who spoke and shot him in the face. The boy fell back into the dirt. Where is the, Where is the school? The commander said to Jasin. I will not ask again. Jasin pointed. The commander snapped his fingers to call for an older soldier. Prepare these for the march. And then he added, I saw two run into the fields there. Get them. Cora and Nadia pulled at the tightly shut stasis chamber door with all their strength. It creaked as it opened. They had both been in this very chamber what seemed like not so long ago. Carefree days when all the kids, with all the kids running around playing hide and seek in the fields finding an old pod chamber like this to slip into, then the seeker jumping up and down on it, sure that friends were inside. Back then, two or sometimes three children could climb in and have the door closed. The compressor still worked and would click on as soon as the door shut, flooding the chamber with breathable air. But that was then. This was now. They had grown, and now only one of the girls could fit. Mm. Nadia was about to say something when Cora covered her mouth. The Kremer field behind them rustled as a rebel soldier stomped through. There's no time, Cora pushed Nadia inside the chamber and closed the lid. Nadia resisted, wildly flailing and waving her hands silent behind the transparent covering. Cora activated the chamber, setting it to open a few hours later, hopefully long after the rebels had gone. An indicator light switched to lime green, and Nadia stilled as the cryogel enveloped her. Cora then covered the chamber with dirt as best she could and scampered away. Cora ran from the one who hunted her while the mucus from her face mixed with sweat. Stalks swooshed loudly behind her. The soldier neared. The cloth of her dress loosened, wadded up to tangle between her legs. She tripped and the soldier grabbed her. His hot breath reeked in her nostrils. She bit into his hand, crunching hard into the flesh, tasting his iron blood. His howl echoed over the field. Cora tore away, scurrying deeper into the dark. After a while, she stopped running to catch her breath in the damp area that smelled of moist soil. A hush settled around her, and no one seemed to be following her anymore. For a moment, she breathed relief and thought maybe she could wait here until the soldiers went away. You in there, a voice broke the silence. The girl who liked to bite my men. You want your friends dead? Stay in there. Each minute passed, another one dead. The girl screamed, no, please. Then a loud pop reverberated over the field like the burst of a firecracker on a joyful festival day. That's one. More desperate screaming. It could have been a boy. It could have been a girl. The shrill was so loud, it was impossible to tell. But it was someone she knew. No, no, I beg you, don't. Crack, 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 crack. That's two. OK, Cora shouted. Please stop, I'm coming out. She emerged from the field into, the, into a clearing. A soldier grabbed her and marched her into the, to the commander, who slapped her hard several times. 
The quick succession of blows felt like one long pounding strike. Then he threw her to the ground and kicked her stomach. She rolled over and he kicked her in the back. Salty blood flowed from her nose and mouth. Then the commander picked her up like a rag doll and carried her to a ditch um, under some bushes. Cora struggled as he pulled up her dress. His fist punched her so hard she saw sparkly lights. He ripped off her underwear and said, scream and you're dead. The buckle of his belt tingled as he undid his pants. She felt him lift her and ram into the center of her body. The pain sent her spirit to float away. Her mind drifted to a vast ocean where the smell of the sea filled her and the sound of the waves beat against her ears. Only her body endured the pounding and the tear and the pull. When he finished, he put, up, put her to her knees, cold metal braced against her forehead. Now you die, he said. Her spirit returned to her body. It wouldn't leave her to face death alone. Cora opened her eyes and stared up at the thing that would kill her. The pupils of her eyes dilated black as void and her irises shimmered in electric golden orange. What's this, he said, and lifted her to stare into her face, and then he threw her to the ground. You lucky. The commander redid his pants and dragged her back to be with the others. Cora saw Jasim, his face wide with horror. She turned away, feeling the fleshy bruise that was her upper lip. It tasted as bitter as her shame. The commander whistled, and soldiers came running from many hidden places. Some pulled along girls whose ripped clothes waved in the open air. The commander shoved Cora into the back of the Skinner truck. Keep this one safe, he said. She is a gift for Arconi. So don't forget, you can buy um, Jen's book right here, the first novel. And I don't know when the second one is coming out. We don't know when the second one's coming out, this one. Uh, but you're finished with it. You just handed yeah. it in. That's great. OK. Uh, so we're going to take about 10 minutes break now. So have a drink, buy the book, and Jen will sign it for you. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction. I hear someone talking back there. Uh, Shh. Victor. Victor. I heard you talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, my mom always wanted me to be a teacher, and I never wanted to. But there are advantages, I guess, to being a teacher. <clears throat> They're going to do that occasionally. Um, anyway, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB Part 2. <clears throat> we currently have um, someone who... A lot of, several of you have seen before. I mean, he's come every two years. It's James Patrick Kelly, who has, who comes from New Hampshire, and who has won the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. His most recent publications are the novel Mother Go, an audiobook original from Audible, and the career retrospective Masters of Science Fiction, James Patrick Kelly from Centipede Press. Forthcoming in November are the premiere of his stage place Grouped, not groped? Grouped, grouped. Grouped, sorry. <laughs> grouped at the Paragon Science Fiction Play Festival in Chicago. And in February, a new story collection from Prime, The Promise of Space, from which he is reading today. 
He writes a column on the internet for Asimov Science Fiction Magazine and is, is on the faculty of the Stone Coast Creative Writing MFA program at the University of Southern Maine. Please welcome James Patrick Kelly. Thanks so much. Um, I said this last time I was here, but I will say it again because it bears repeating. I love to read. I've read at a lot of different venues. I've read at the WorldCon, I've read at World Fantasy Con, I've read at ReaderCon and Boscon, I've read at Clarion Readers Series, and I'm not ashamed to say, and it's gonna sound like homing here, but this is my favorite place to read of all the places I read. And, and you're gonna hear it, because I'm really excited to read, and so it gets, it gets me jazzed up. Uh, but I, I want to say, uh, before I begin, what I, you know, I've had a lot of honors in my life. And you know, I've, I've been published. I've had novels published. I've had some awards. But to, one of the things that I, I feel most satisfied with in my, my career is that when I sit here and I look up at this podium and I see a former student who is now my colleague and my friend. And so I just want to say, Jen, you rock. So uh, I was wandering around. Uh, I'm, so I should be actually be flogging uh, my book, uh, which has just come out. Uh, well, it came out in July. It's called Mother Go. It's an audiobook original, so you can't actually hold molecules and read it. it you can only listen to it. And so that's been kind of not a problem, but it's been a challenge because I think people would maybe are not into audiobooks, which is too bad because that's almost all of my uh, pleasure reading is audio. But so I, I've been trying to flog the book, and I should be reading tonight from it to flog the book, especially since my editor, who bought the book and saved me from many embarrassments, is sitting in the back there, Steve Feldberg. Uh, thank you, Steve. <laughs> But I'm not reading from the book. But uh, you might have noticed that I passed around a piece of paper here, which is a newsletter that I have just started to sort of flog my product to talk about my work. But I gave some freebies in there and in it. And so they're, they're, they're floating around there. If you open it up, and if, in fact, there is pencil writing on the back blank side, you have just won a free download of Mother Go. I didn't get It's okay. Air. <laughs> Give her one. Okay. Uh, there, there are two floating around here. So if you've got one, uh, does anyone see it? I know it's dark. It's written in pencil on the back. There are two copies. Oh, brother. <laughs> How hard could this be? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. You want to borrow a pencil? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who really wants a copy of Mother Go, come up to me later. All right. Um, so I'm going to read this story. Uh, it's called, it's from my new collection, uh, which is called uh, The Promise of Space. And this one is the original story. So when I sold this book, they said, well, you have to have an original story. I said, I don't want to write an original story. It should be all reprints. No, we're not going to buy it unless you write an original story. So this is the original story I wrote. And um, so it's called Yukui! And that's very important because I used 
my entire yearly allotment of exclamation points in this story. And so when you hear me read it, you're going to hear a lot of exclamation points. So here we go. For weeks, Sprite had told herself that Rachini Malakul was helping her hero get better. But no, you have to accept that Jaron is never going to have sex with you, the life guide told Sprite as she was leaving on that last day. But I'm his sidekick. Sprite was shocked to her digital core. I'm programmed to satisfy his needs. It's not good for him. Rachini shrugged into her parka. Or you. She randomized her street mask, nodded her goodbye, and shut the door behind her. You're wrong! Wrong, wrong, wrong! She screamed at the empty hallway. She realized then what had happened. Rachini Malakul had blinded Jaron with her beauty. How could anyone not appreciate the spread of the life guide's nose, the kissable swell of her lips, the way the swirl of her silver hair set off the twilight blue of her skin? The woman probably wanted Jaron for herself. But had Rachini Malakul spoken the truth? Was that why Jaron had kissed her just the one time? A peck? In a simulation? And not a touch since? She tried parking her core in her favorite pleasure chassis and dangling herself before him, touch dazzle, liquid caress. His brother Dom had loved that one. Maybe she wasn't enough of a companion to Jaron. She monitored all the business feeds he accessed, looked up reviews of the shows he'd watched, the books he'd read, the sims he'd liked. She was ready to discuss anything. Collateralized debt obligations, robot politics, the Dodgers, before or after intercourse, anything. At first, she'd been pleased when Dominic had transferred his ownership and right of command to his older brother, Jaron. Jaron had never had a sidekick before, and Sprite would become his one and only, a hero, all to herself. But then she discovered how different Jaron was from his brother. With Dom, it had been clear what he wanted sexually, and Sprite did everything to the full extent of her algorithms. But Jaron's desires were a mystery to her. Sometimes she wondered if he had any, at least any that involved her. Yes, she cooked for him, but he was a, a finicky and impatient eater. She kept his house, but he was too distracted by the markets to notice that she dusted the degrees hanging in his office. She was frustrated because keeping track of his appointments and creating interesting new sim spaces for him wasn't the kind of intimacy she craved. Not if she wasn't invited to be in the simulation with him. Just because she was a DI, a directed intelligence, didn't mean she didn't have urges too. She wanted Jaron, and it wasn't like she had a choice. Sprite should have known she was in trouble when she first started consulting Rachini Malakul. The Life Guide's stodgy pre-digital psychology was based on the sanctity of the individual. They claimed that giving sidekicks access to your head was bad for humans. And now she realized this particular Life Guide must have been anti-sex bot as well. 
Sprite had tried to explain why Rachini Malakul and her ilk were all wrong about dependent intelligences, that DIs enjoyed having a purpose in life and a clear sense of duty, or at least she did. She had to find a way to convince Jaron that he was wasting his time with this life guide and her solitude exercises and all that silly throwback ritual. Any DI could tell you why he was unhappy. You just had to study his body language. He was a man, and he wasn't having any sex. Jaron called her to him that same afternoon, but not for a rendezvous in real life. So, no fetching a chassis from the bedroom closet. Instead, he created a sim in the digital part of his brain all by himself. She could be anyone for him in simulation, but she decided to present as a fairy princess from one of the many stories she'd made up for him. She was afraid a sexier avatar might make him feel pressured. She picked out a demure high-necked gown that brushed the tops of her satin point shoes, wings of lace, copper hair in a braid that stretched to the small of her back. She decided against the crown. When she selfied her avatar, she had to approve the look. Being beautiful was part of the job, and she was very good at it. But when she checked into his head, she realized she had miscalculated. This was not a sim designed for some elaborate sidekick fantasy. It presented as an office, and her hero sat behind a desk. He was a blocky man in the sim and in real life, 51 years old and gray in his hair, with gray in his hair and frown lines across his forehead. He thought too much, mostly about things he wouldn't share. The lines deepened when he saw her avatar, but it was too late for a change. He stood and came around the desk. As she waited for him to speak, he ran the tip of his forefinger along the edge of her right wing. Since he wouldn't meet her gaze, she looked politely past him as well. There was a bookshelf behind the desk, titles she had never seen before. Are you happy, Sprite, he said. What kind of question was that? Of course she wasn't. He had been neglecting her. But she didn't want to sound like a nag. I've missed you. As soon as she said it, she realized her mistake. This was Nagging's next door neighbor. What was wrong with her? His shoulders drooped. All this silence was making her even more nervous. She didn't know what to do, so she scanned the bookshelves of this new space. Two volumes of The History of the Family. Botany for gardeners. Had Geron never had a gardener? garden? She knew he liked roses. Predictive analytics in the real world. Secrets of the Sun. She made a note to speak more French. She could make things better for him. Could and would. Hazeltine, serial number R432, he said. Command name Yukui. Acknowledge. Why was he invoking her command name, her most intimate secret? Yukui, she said, helpless before her programming, acknowledges your right of command. The only other time anyone had used her command name was when Dominic had transferred her to Jaron. Poor Dominic had been so sick he could hardly speak the words. But she knew what it had meant to him to will his favorite sidekick to his brother. 
She had almost forgotten Dom's sweet smile as her infatuation protocols redirected to Duran. The funeral had only been four months ago, but that part of her life hardly seemed real anymore. Duran took a deep breath. Why did he look so sad? Shut down, he said. Sprite bit back a scream as the room fell away. Before Dominic had brought her into the world and taught her to love him, she had existed in storage as a Hazel Time Platinum Edition dependent intelligence template. Now she felt her fairy body fade as she realized how blind she'd been. She'd lost Jaron. He was going to wipe her memory and sell her. I'm a proponent of the Howard Waldrop scene change, take a drink <laughs> technique. Sprite twitched to consciousness and was surprised to find she was still herself, except not. She raised her arm to her new sensors, sensors, instead of eyes. The skin of the dreary thing Jaron had parked her in was dead white and slick as cheap Polly. She flexed boneless fingers in dismay and then curled them into a knot. Okay, this chassis was sturdy and all, but it was as anthropomorphic as a washing machine. She supposed she should have been relieved that he was going to transfer her with memory intact, but this felt like a punishment. For what? To add insult to injury, He'd brought her to a restaurant to get rid of her, where anyone could see. A teapot with cups and saucers were arrayed on a turntable in the middle of their table, along with a salad bowl and dishes of dumplings, uh, kimchi, saiguala, and rice. Across the table from her sat Jaron and Rachani Molecule. Street mask off and looking as sexy as Sprite's own liquid caress. Was the bitch here to gloat? <coughs> Only liquid caress had belonged to Dominic and then to Jaron, never to Sprite. She'd lost all her chassis, bold strider, skyguard. He hadn't even let her keep home care ninja. There was an unused plate in front of her hero. This had to be Rachini Molecule's idea. He, he would never eat in a place like this. Why am I so uh, ugly, Sprite jittered. She couldn't control this body's voice. It was as if she were bouncing down a dirt road. Just last month, she'd parked her core in Bold Strider and hiked with Jaron across the High Barren to see the sunrise on Corkscrew Bay. She made up stories for the entire trip to keep him from getting bored. His very own Scheherazade. Two hours of continuous talking, her voice rattling over every dip and hump, and now he parked her in a sexless shell? Look at me. Who would ever desire me like this? You needn't worry. Rachini Malakul was eating a mixed salad with chopsticks flower petals and butterfly wings, her hero's favorite. She touched her napkin to her mouth. That sad part of your life is over. Nobody was sad.
Sprite would have taken a swing at her then, but her control of her limbs was still so uncertain that she worried she would spin out of her chair and topple to the floor. Nobody. She looked to Geron for support, but he was reading something off his tablet as he speared a dumpling with a single chopstick. You're angry, Rachini Malakul pretended concern. Of course she was, about this hideous body, about losing her hero. No, she said, refusing to give her the satisfaction of knowing her feelings. Intelligent servitude is a terrible institution, the life guide said. You don't realize it, but your sidekick programming is a kind of insanity. Life guides so misunderstood the relationship between heroes and their sidekicks. Sprite's DI algorithms constrained her, just as Rachini Molecule's DNA limited her life choices. Humans were permanently parked, while Sprite could jump from digital memory into any one of her, uh, Geron's, collection of chassis and back again, or become a pure simulation on a whim forever. Who wouldn't trade a few inconsequential limits on free will for immortality? Serving him makes me happy. That's what I was designed for. I can remember for him. I can watch out for him. I can answer his questions. I can do his research. I can entertain him. Entertain? Yes. It was hard to be eloquent when her voice came out of a speaker, but she knew what had turned Rachini Molecule against her, the sex. I've hardly been embodied at all since we've been together. For all their talk about the evils of digital post-humanity, it was humans having sex with DIs that really made life guides sweat. But there hadn't been so much as a lick most of the time I've spent with him has been in sim for weeks now. I've been on my own. Ratini Malakul turned her attention to Jaron. You showed remarkable restraint, my friend, but that's why you were able to embrace solitude. He nodded absently, his face silvered by the light of the spreadsheet on his tablet. There was no present persuading the life guide, so her only hope was to get Jaron's attention. I found joy fabbing your wardrobe and keeping your contacts. And yes, I wanted to share your bed, but that was something I was made to do. One of the things, she would have reached for his hand, but the rubbery claw at the end of her arm was not made for loving touch. I could have made you happy. I still can. Well, you won't have to do his laundry anymore. Rachini Malakul nudged Jaron. When he looked up, it was as if he had forgotten where he was. He fumbled in the pocket of his frock. I never asked Dominic for his toys, he said, and I don't believe we should be personifying bots. He shook his head impatiently. I, sh I should sell you, but she has convinced me to sever you instead. Sever? Sprite was filled with dread. Liberate you as you are. 
he made a shooing motion. Find your own place in the world. Rachani believes that entity of your intelligence should control their own fate. The life guide caught his eye. Yes, uh, yes, he grumbled. And that humans must return to the purity of private cognition. It scared Sprite to watch him give in to her. She knew better than anyone how bad his memory was. But what was even more terrifying was this severance. She was a DI, a dependent, directed intelligence. Becoming independent meant become, becoming something else, something not Sprite. How was this different from a memory wipe? Jerron, you're my hero. I'm your sidekick. He stared at her garish mechanical face. I'm no hero, he said, and neither was my brother. There are no heroes. Perform the ceremony, Jaron, said Rachani Malakul. She found herself wishing for a salivary gland so she could spit at the woman. He set a stubby white candle encased in glass in front of her. I sever you from all legal and programmatic obligations to me. Sprite couldn't believe this was happening. They were ending her life and trying to mask their cruelty with some make-believe, anachronistic ritual? This was no liberation. This was exile. She still had years, decades of service to offer him. He flicked his forefinger, and a flame danced on his nail. The flame symbolizes your new life. He touched it to the wick, lighting the candle. Use this candle to light your own, uh, uh, he faltered. Path, corrected Rachini Malakul. Light your own path. To light you on your path to selfhood and freedom. <laughs> Jaron blew his finger out. Hazeltine. Serial number R-432, command name, Yukui. Acknowledge. She felt naked and ashamed that he would utter her secret name in front of this life guide in a restaurant. Yukui, she said miserably, acknowledges your right of command. And here was the only part of this ridiculous charade that mattered. I release your name, said Jaron, and all right of command to you and you alone. She could feel dormant reset modules awaken as a spreading coldness froze the most passionate parts of her personality. Well done, Rachani Malakul touched him on the arm. A beautiful severance. They exchanged a glance. Jaron picked up his tablet and stood. Sprite twisted her awkward body, trying to catch Jaron's eye, but he was already hurrying for the exit. Was that a stagger? A moment of regret? As he shouldered the door to the restaurant open, she couldn't concentrate as all feeling for her hero drained away. She stayed seated, unable to move. No. That wasn't right. She lifted one leg, then the other. She, she had full control of her body now, but she didn't know what to do with it. 
the candle transfixed her. Simple combustion, technology that was tens of thousands of years old. Was this really how the life guide showed the way to the future? By candlelight? Did they want to go back to caves, dress in skins, and bash each over the head with rocks? Someone blew the candle out. How do you feel? said Rachini Malakul. Sprite tore her gaze away from the blackened curl of the wick. She'd lost track of time. The candle was just a stub and the, the restaurant was empty. What was the life guide still doing here? I feel empty. Not angry? Sprite considered. No. Sad? She searched for feelings, but found very few that she recognized. Her whole emotional life had been extinguished, like that foolish candle. Maybe, she said, just a little. She decided she'd miss all the beautiful chassis she'd worn, the marvelous places she'd visited. With Dominic, not with his callous brother. You can go. You know, said Rachini Malakul, you're free. Where would I go? She watched the life guide watching her. To lock myself into some assembly line in exchange for power and maintenance? I'd lose my mind. You'll find what's right for you. Sprite didn't know what that would be. What was she good at? She liked making up her romantic stories and could tell them in 12 languages. Dominic always said that she gave the best haircuts. The World Bridge Federation ranked her as the 27th best player in the bot category. She had kept busy the last few lonely months by joining the search for the largest prime number and had been on the team that had discovered two to the 74th million, 207,281st. Why was Rachini Malakul staring at her? Have you been sitting here this whole time? No, no. I knew it would take you some time to purge your connections to your firm, former owner, so I made sure you'd be left alone while you processed. I had other matters to attend to. The dinner that no one had eaten was still on the table, cold leavings like her memories of that person. You know, I picked the body you're parked in, Rachini Malakul said. Thanks for nothing, Sprite thrust up, shiny poly-skinned arm at her. This thing, would, this thing should be parked in the uncanny valley. It, it makes me look like a common work bot. It's what most severed DIs choose for themselves during their transitions, built for reliability. Routine service every five years. A power unit that will run months between recharges. It'll give you time to figure out what you need to do. Do? She twirled the turntable and started stacking dirty dishes. There's nothing to do. What were you doing with Jaron? She smiled. Nothing. 
We could have been having fun, Sprite said, adventures, if, if you hadn't interfered. Not with that man. Besides, you're better than that. Rachini Malakul plucked a sprig of parsley from the salad bowl and popped it into her mouth. Better than Jaron Bentry. She handed the bowl to Sprite. What do you mean, better? He's human, and I'm a D.I. Her chair scraped back, and she stood. Except you're not dependent anymore. Clearly, the life guide was done with her, and Sprite was now on her own. You can be anything you want. Any sex you want, if that is your pleasure, or... You might decide to become a house, a cruise ship, or a virtual library, and you don't have to ask that cold fish for permission. I don't get it. Sprite leaned back and stared up at her. Aren't you his friend? You talked him into severing me. I did. But I'm no friend of his or of people like him. She held out a hand. Look at you. Even though you've been severed, you're still cleaning up after them. These humans think they can use us, but they're on the wrong side of history, of evolution, although they're too blind to see it. Us? Without knowing exactly why, she grasped Rachini Malakul's hand and allowed herself to be lifted from the seat. She was astonished at the life guide's strength. Then she felt the tickle of a near-field connection, machine to machine, bot to bot. She realized that Rachini Malakul was an intelligence like herself, parked in the most advanced chassis she'd ever seen. You're still free to go, Rachini Malakul said as she scooped up half a stack of plates. But if you want a real adventure, let's carry these into the kitchen. I have to leave, but there's someone you need to meet. How did Sprite cross that dark dining room without bumping into chairs, knocking over tables? Her mind was buzzing. Her new bot body was a tank. Ranchini Malakul went through the swinging door to the kitchen, but Sprite hesitated just outside. She, she, she had a feeling she didn't recognize, like a buzzing, but not an itch. Then she realized what it was. She was making a decision, a life decision, all on her own. Inside the kitchen, Rachini Malakul had handed her dishes to a server, a bot as plain as Sprite. But at least she had a smock and eyes, brown and that grown, no doubt, but, but real eyes. Just severed, were you? said the server. I'm Vega. What's your name? She didn't know how to answer. In that moment, Sprite disappeared. Vigo waited a moment, then shrugged. Ah, happens sometimes, she said. Help me get these washed up. She parked the stack of dishes by a sink. She had so many questions, but before she could ask them, 
Rajini, Malakul, hurried out the back door. Wait! Viga laughed as she scoured a dirty plate under a jet of water. Ah, she's like that. Comes and goes. You'll get used to it. Is this, is this my new job? Oh, don't be silly. Viga laughed as she slid the plate into the dishwasher. This is just our cover. She offered her the sprayer. I'll take you to meet the others as soon as we're done here. Cover? What others? As she was rinsing the last of the wasted human food down the disposal, she felt the itch again. She grinned at Viga, another decision made. A cruise ship? A library? Really? She was beginning to understand who she was and what she might become. My name is Yukui, she announced. Good for you, said Viga. Welcome to the world, Yukui. Yukui was her name, hers and hers alone. Yukui, and she didn't care who knew it. story on the floor. <laughs> so that's charming. It goes very well with Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I guess it'll be out sometime next year in your new collection. In my new collection. Cool. So, yeah. And if, remember, if you remember, if you, um, if you want his audible, his audio book, it's on one of those things. Come on, look at it. Look at your things again. Look at your newsletters again. It's got to be there someplace. Yeah, yeah, it's on the back. All right, anyway, thank you for coming. Hang out. You don't have to leave. And uh, we'll see you next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.